when I was a kid, I believed in all the rhetoric. I believed in all the things that, that coaches told me that about about how it was going to make me a great and all these things. And none of that stuff mattered. It, it didn't matter because it didn't teach me as a player. I was the most narcissistic, self-centered, self-absorbed, egomaniacal person you can meet. Fred, you know, I win, you lose. That's it, right? I mean, and none of that. That didn't teach me to be a better, a better father, a better husband, a better brother, a better son. It didn't teach me to be a better person. Teach me, it taught me to be a better athlete, but not a better person. And and there was nothing in the environment that softened those messages. Um, and I was fortunate that I had really strict parents who 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 made sure that that those attitudes that I had on the football field did not bleed into the house. Welcome to the Fred Opie Show, where we help students, parents, and coaches give their best effort on and off the field. Today on the Fred Opie Show, Syracuse All-American quarterback Don McPherson. A native of Long Island, we go deep into Don's career as a early day black quarterback back in the day when that was such a, a unusual thing to see. We talk about that experience his experience of being recruited as a student athlete, his decision to go to Syracuse University and why. Then we get into what Don is doing today. He spends a lot of time on college campuses speaking uh, about violence against women and preventing that problem and that's in that situation on many college campuses today. We also talk about the fact that he's raising two girls back on Long Island and his views which have been evolving about youth sports in America. This guy's got some interesting things to say, and I hope you will hang in there and enjoy the waxing eloquently Don McPherson. Why did you choose Syracuse? Well, I grew up on Long Island, where I live now, and uh, here in New York, and I wanted to stay close to home. The, the Cary Dome had been recently built, and so the program was going in what you know what we thought was the right direction. And and I wanted to stay close to home. I, I had grandparents who lived and cousins who lived about two hours south of Syracuse, and uh, it felt like home when I got there. I. Uh, was recruited by by a lot of schools around the country, as far west obviously as UCLA and USC and, and Miami and you know all corners. Um, but I I took one other visit other than Syracuse, and that was to Iowa, and and that was a more of a visit just to talking with my dad, and my brother, uh, my brother who also played in the NFL at the time was was with the San Diego Chargers. I said, listen, why, why you owe you owe it to yourself to at least go check out some place other than Syracuse, and Iowa was my next choice, and so I made that visit, and uh, it was clear to me when I got there that I made the right choice at Syracuse. Do you have any at all roots, time spent thinking about it, sticking my hand every once in a while experiences? Watching those guys with sticks in their hands, and, I, and the only thing I could think of—it was the closest thing I ever came to, to you know, considering a game like hockey. I couldn't understand playing a game with a stick in my hand. As, as a football player, that thought, that was like, man, I am going to smack you with this stick on a regular. So <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing. I was like, man, they got sticks in their hands and they're just swiping at each other. It's amazing because you were surrounded by so many great programs uh, yeah. in, in Nassau County. And then you go on to Syracuse where, you know, we had some great teams when me and you were both there. And, you know, for those that don't know, I met Donnie basically sitting in a cold whirlpool as we both were rehabbing knees. So 
That's how, that's how far we, we go back. <laughs> Donnie, tell people what you are doing now, what your line of work. Work around sexual and domestic violence. I sit on two different NCA committees, um, the Commission to Combat Sexual Sexual Assault and NCA Task Force, and I'm on college campuses on a regular basis speaking and doing advocacy work. Now, Donnie, the sport of lacrosse has had a culture. Uh, it's been, I would describe as problematic. I've, as I said, I've been going in, in sports locker rooms and on college campuses for 23 years talking about sexual violence. And, and at, at the core of what I talk about is masculinity and how men behave. Not, I don't talk about women. I talk about how we as men behave, recognizing that we're the perpetrators of the violence and it's our culture that needs to be addressed. And so and it, when I say our culture, there are all these these subcultures and the, and what's really interesting about lacrosse and and you, and you know Fred back back when we were in school I may have been the man as a football player but Syracuse University was not my campus as a predominantly white campus and a wealthy campus it was not my campus I was a, I was an anomaly as I walked you and I were, were an anomaly as we walked across campus in Syracuse so no matter how big time you thought you were as a football player socially it wasn't your environment so. But where, what was different at Syracuse, and I've been to a couple of schools, it's really interesting, a, a couple of schools that are powerhouse lacrosse schools, where the lacrosse players are like football players. And, and at, at Syracuse, you guys were, you guys were big time because you were winning national championships. You, you were at the top of your, uh, of your sport. And so you had that gravitas to, you know, that valid, you know, being, being valid. But the other thing you had, and maybe not the case for you as, as African American, but if you're a white guy on a predominantly white campus and the social structure is what you're used to and there are more white women and, and, and white culture, it's, it, it gets elevated. It's actually they're actually more vulnerable to some of these problems than the than the black football player who's from the hood, who's on a predominantly white campus, where the, where socially he's more isolated. And so, yeah, lacrosse has and, and lacrosse has that because of the the, the schools that the way lacrosse is big. Um, there is a for white men on those campuses, on predominantly white campuses, affluent white campuses where lacrosse is big. And I've been to many of these schools, and I've seen this dynamic. It is; it gets exasperated. And by the way, I'm, this is not a criticism; this is an analysis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because because I feel like a lot of those white men, and this is a, a big problem with the conversation around masculinity, is that we're not we're not talking about how toxic masculinity really impacts white men, and this is one of those ways. What What are the things that you bring when you go to talk to those type of campuses with lacrosse and elevated sport what are some of the prescriptions that you say that our listeners could implement in their own programs you know i'll give you i'll give you a, a, an example of something that happened at a program and i was um i was calling it was just really more of a leadership conversation with with a team and the coach uh was a big time coach and I, I called a couple of my my lacrosse guys to find out know a little bit like about him um and you know he's just a, a well-respected coach and and so i went through this sort of a, a a talk with with their team and at the at towards the end of it and it was really about leadership and and looking out for one another and and you know taking care of each other off the field and those sets of very positive uh you know a leadership kind of message but then i slipped in what i do around sexual violence and and i and i, I talked about 
the, the language that we use. And I always ask men, what's the worst insult you ever heard as a little boy? And it's you throw like a girl, you run like a girl. Something that's saying, and, 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 and in that I always say that we don't raise boys to be men, we raise boys not to be women. Mm. Because we use all this language of telling boys what not to be. Don't be soft, don't be a sissy. It's all misogynistic and sexist language. And that's at the core of men's violence against women. But part of that lesson is also breeding this really narrow understanding of masculinity. I have to be tough and strong. And that is, and this is where athletes get caught in sort of this double, it's a, it's a double whammy really, because that's the message of what it means to be a man, right? Don't be, don't, don't back down and, and all that nonsense. But in sports, that's what we have to be. We have to be tough and strong and, and can't, you know, you know, fall down and start crying when the bad things happen. And right. So, so, so those athletes, we get it on the field, but then we get it off the field as well because we're men. And so part of that language that we use in sports that we excuse and we think it's okay because we're doing it in the context of the game is sexist and misogynistic and homophobic. And I laid this out for these guys. I said, I want you to understand that when you're saying this to each other on the field and when you're saying this to each other you know, off the field, that you're creating this attitude and this culture and this climate, which is the big, you know, the words that we use now about sexual violence on, on campuses. It's a culture and a climate. It's Baylor. What was the climate like? What was the attitude of the men about women? And I, so I explained that to them. And when I did that, and I, and, I, and I do it in a very positive way. This is not a, you guys are bad. This is about how we all as men have been raised to, to sort of behave and talk to each other, especially in the context of sports. And when I finished, the coach came up to the front of the room. And I, and I, I realized that he might have been a little bit mad because I was really getting down to some of the things. And he said, listen, I did this today. He said, I wouldn't be the kind of coach that I believe I am if I didn't come up in front of my team and tell you in front of them that I did this today. And this is something that I have to be mindful of is the language that I use with my with my players and with my young men and what messages I'm giving them outside of playing sports. There's nothing wrong with being tough and strong and, and all that. But what kind of language are you using to instill that, that those, those qualities? And, and, I, and I think that's, a, to me, one of the biggest things is that we have this sort of zero-sum game about sports. I win, you lose, and you know, and, and, we, and we use these expressions like pain is weakness, leaving the body. It's all nonsense. It's hyperbole. And, and I, you know, I have a book, a chapter in my book that I'm working on that's titled the, Hyper, uh, the Hyperbole of Sports is Used to Perpetuate the Myth of Masculinity. And it's, it's a big problem. It's an, and I do believe it's at the core of a lot of men's problems in society, but also at the core of men's violence against women. When you talk as an African-American to these lacrosse players, our sport tends to be lily white. Let's just be honest, folks. Uh, despite that it came from Native Americans, it is, it's pretty lily white. Do you have to or let them know about your bona fides first as an athlete before they take you serious? Yes, I always say that, that my background as, a, as an athlete gives me the first five minutes free. They're sitting there for the first five minutes going, okay, what does this guy have to say if he's all those things? Where you know where? What's his perspective? I have to be really strategic with those with those free five minutes because that allows me to set set the stage for a, a conversation that that very often men aren't ready to have. I want to turn to youth sports. Uh, I know you're a father of two daughters. Is that right? Yes, two daughters. So here's a question for you: What's something you thought was right about youth sports? But now, later, you learn was wrong. All the altruism of sports and, and all the great things that sports are supposed to do, um, it didn't do. 
why is that? If sports is this great character building experience, why do we have so many so many guys who are just not great characters? When I was a kid, I believed in all the rhetoric. I believed in all the things that, that coaches told me that about about how it was going to make me a great and all these things. And none of that stuff mattered. It, it didn't matter because it didn't teach me as a player. I was the most narcissistic, self-centered, self-absorbed, egomaniacal person you can meet. Fred, you know, I win, you lose. That's it, right? I mean, and none of that. That didn't teach me to be a better, a better father, a better husband, a better brother, a better son. It didn't teach me to be a better person. Teach me, it taught me to be a better athlete, but not a better person. And and there was nothing in the environment that softened those messages. Um, and I was fortunate that I had really strict parents who um, who who made sure that that those attitudes that I had on the football field did not bleed into the house. I believe that sports has become a cancer in our culture because because of the myth, because of all these automatic assumptions that we have about sports. What, when did sports become the, the be-all and end-all in, in raising our kids? It, it, it's, it's a lie. It was never true. Give us three takeaways. Business changed the way sports functioned in our, in our culture, and it, it exposed a lot of things about sports that were never true how we are the the only country in, in the industrialized world that you that attaches sports to higher education the way that we do and, and the impact that that has case in point baylor not just baylor when you have student athletes who fill hundred thousand seat stadiums and and can't read and do college work when you when you have a basketball player at, at north carolina who gets a standing applause for showing up in class because he hit a shot the next day it's, it's a very distorted environment in which we call these these guys student athletes on college campuses but the other thing on, on the youth level is is what i said a moment ago we, we say sports builds community it doesn't build community not when you have travel leagues not when you when you you're, you're diminishing house leagues and you have travel leagues and you're starting to pick one or two kids from one community and then one or two kids from another community to go build a team that goes out of state that's not building community that's not building solidarity within within your community or you have one child in a family where all the resources are going to the, towards that one child because he or she is the hockey or soccer phenom that has to be in all the showcase uh, tournaments. That's not building, that's not bringing families together. I spent a, a day uh, in a hockey arena in, in Brooklyn a few weeks ago and, and watched how many kids were being neglected so that one kid could be on the ice you know, at a tournament for seven hours. There's all these different these different uh, ways in which we, we say that sports does things that it does not do and never did. And that's, and that's sort of the, you know, there was a time, I think, when I grew up where the, the town came together around around the sport. But, but that's also very narcissistic because it wasn't the town. It was just the families that were involved in that sport. And because the business got so great, sports got elevated to a place that it really, in my opinion, didn't really earn. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter or send them to our website at fredopi.com. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying this show, be sure to check out the episode of the podcast where Fred interviews John O'Sullivan, the founder and director of the Changing the Game Project, which is dedicated to improving the experience of children and youth sports. That podcast is available on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to the Fred Opie Show. And here's a short clip from the show. You create the best environment possible for as many kids as possible, right? 
and, and, and keep that environment as long as possible and, and then let them grow. Because, you know, athletic success before puberty is uh, an incredibly, is a huge non-predictor of success later on. Usually the kids who are successful when they're young are the kids who are, you know, relatively older. They're born within four months of that calendar cutoff date. Kids develop on different timelines. And when you think about a, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old who was born in January versus December, that year, that's 10% of their life. Once again, that was John O'Sullivan on the Fred Opie Show. You can check out that episode on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you listen to the podcast. Now let's get back to the show with Fred and former Syracuse starting quarterback Don McPherson. When and why did the light go on and you became a revisionist uh, scholar of sports? It, it started when I was eight years old, uh, and I didn't want to play football. I was scared to play, and I ran off the field twice crying. It's a story I told to kids for years, and I had to play because I had two older brothers. Uh, one ultimately became the second-ranked middleweight in the world as a boxer. The other one, at the same time, was playing professionally for the San Diego Chargers, and I had to play. It was almost like a mandate for my family. I wasn't a real McPherson boy unless I did that and unless I played. And then, and then by the time I got to high school, I transferred to another school simply because of football. And I used to, and so there was a, I had a longer walk than usual, you know, I walked uphill both, you know, both ways, right? And I had to fight off the bear with my binder. I mean, I walked to school with these, with these constant conversations in my head about why did I make this decision to go to another school just because of football? And on top of that, I was a quarterback and I went to this other school that was a predominantly white school as a black kid in the seventies, uh, early, late seventies. And I knew that to many people, I was still a nigger on the street, but to the fans, I was okay. And so I grew up, I was born, you know, we were born, I was born in 1965 in this, during the civil rights movement. And I understood, you know, the deep seated racism that, that existed in our country. But at the same time, as a football player, I was given a pass. So from, from the very early in my life, I saw this, this mandate about sports and, and sort of how it was attached to, to my identity. Uh, but then at the same time that, that I understood the hypocrisy of sports because it was okay with me as a black man as long as I was playing the game, but not okay with me as a, as a black man if I was just walking down the street. Uh, those things I, I were, were visible to me as a kid. Um, in, in, you know, especially here on Long Island, Long Island is one of the most segregated areas in the country. We, you know, by neighborhood, we are segregated in, in, by every, every demographic. So I was very familiar with sort of how, you know, how, how racism and sexism and uh, anti-Semitism and all that really functions in our society. And I watched it and I experienced it as a kid in a very visceral way. There's certainly the yin and the yang. You know, yep. there's the accolades there's the past, the passport that you get as an athlete, totally clear with that. But then there's the consciousness speaking to you about, man, this is this is a crock. I loved practice as much as I loved games because I was just with my boys and we were playing and we were competing. I love to compete and I love the game. I, you know, I love some of the nastiness of football. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm sitting here holier than now. I love big hits and I love guys getting depleted of all the things that we, we want against now because of concussions and all that. I love that. And I love the game. I love the strategy of the game. It was all the things around the game that, that were, 
you know, increasingly distasteful to me. And, and I was fortunate that while I was in college, yes, you're right, I, I had to suppress all of that, all of my, my social justice leanings. I, before the draft in 1988, I sent a letter to all 30, 20, 28 uh, general managers in the NFL telling them not to draft me if they weren't going to play me a quarterback. So, yeah, there was always a social justice sort of bent to how I looked at, at my role as a quarterback. And I hated the accolades. I hated I, – that's one of the reasons why I walked around campus in a certain tie in college. I didn't want people to, to – you know, it was bad enough. You know, I, I had an afro and I was one of the few black guys on, on campus and, and, the, and the quarterback of the football team. I could not be inconspicuous. And so that's one of the reasons why I wore a shirt and tie, because I wanted to control at least part of the narrative of my identity uh, that I was very cognizant of. And the shirt and tie thing started when I was in high school, uh, because I was very aware of it. So it was always, like you said, yin and yang, always a, a, tug, and, uh, a, tug, a tug of war with my identity as, as a person versus my identity as an athlete um, that I was hyper-cognizant of. What's something you believe about youth sports today as a dad as a husband that everybody else thinks you're crazy we're no longer spending time with family because we're spending the entire day in a car we're traveling on weekends and all of a sudden you know all these things that we're doing that are taking away from the quality of life as a family because of the, the demands of specialization and travel and, and all that. that 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 to me is antithetical to what family should be about and, and this is, I think, is a really critical point. Kids love to play. And as adults, we have co-opted the thing that kids love for the sake of a business. And I, I once had a, a mother many, many years ago uh, um, up in Manhasset on Long Island. And, and she said um, to me, what happens if my son's not good enough to play? Where does he go? And I said, well, how old is your son? And she said, he's eight. I started crying. In front, in front of this audience. That's a crime. There's no reason. There's, listen, it, it, up until the time you, you're being paid professionally, you're playing. You're mm. playing. It is a game. And, and at this point that, that adults have said that a kid is not good enough to play, that is, the, that is one of the, the greatest crimes in my, as an as a athlete, as a person who loves play. Uh, it's one of the greatest crimes against humanity is that we have co-opted what children love to do. And I've had, I, I had a parent uh, once who said, well, my, my daughter plays tennis a couple days a week. I think I should, should go to a, a, a third day, a fourth day, or whatever it was. I said, she goes, how do I know if I should put her in, a, in, a, in a, you know, another day of lessons? I said, this is what you do. So you take a tennis ball and you take a racket and you put it in the middle of the living room and you walk away from it. And if you come back an hour later and it's still there, your kid doesn't want to play tennis. Ooh. But, but if your kid is against the wall, bang, bang, bang against the garage door and you have to go yell at your kid to, to put the racket down, then your kid wants to play. That's it. If the kid is not going out there and self-motivated, you know, Fred, if, 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 if little, remember the little football game we used to have in our hand, do yeah, do yeah, right, yeah, little yeah. touchdown game? If, 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 that was a, if that was an Olympic sport, I would have been a gold medal winner because I was <laughs> that thing nonstop because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play. One's 11, the other one's 13. And I told them, I said, the minute that I have to spend more time on your sport than you do, you're done. And that includes me driving. So the minute that I have to spend more time on it than you than you spend on it, you're done because you're not then self motivated. And if you're not self motivated, it becomes the it becomes the agenda of the parent and not the kid. You're right. You can't be ahead of the kid with the sport. It's crazy. People have always talked about parents living vicariously with their kids. I don't think it's that. I, I do think that there's a a real misguided fear 
among parents that if they don't do these things, that their kids are going to be left out of something. And, and, and that comes from this bigness of the business of sports that is, is, is really is also a life. It's, it's, it's the myth of the college scholarship. Um, there's all the, the, these, these misinformed parents who did not grow up in sports. They, they, they grew up, many, many parents grew up being discarded from sports because that's what sports does to you. It discards you. It kicks you out uh, at, at, early, at early ages in life. And so you have a lot of parents who just don't simply give it more credit than it deserves as a, as a quality that their kids need in their lives. So what is the other extreme, though, of the parent that doesn't want their kid involved at all in sports? Tell us where you are with that. What does your child need to do in terms of activity, action, and words to convince you, yeah, she's serious, and now I'm going to support her. I don't. I'm not completely, you know, totally against it. I, I pick and choose my battles. As I said, my my youngest played. You know, she played for a number of years. What she called soccer. She played, you know, every Saturday morning. Got together for a half hour, and ran around the field. Was there? I clapped for her. If she did something good, and I clapped for her. If she did something bad, and and uh, you know, so it wasn't that that they weren't allowed to do it. I, I, I'm not completely agnostic to the idea. I think that that a kid has to show that they are uh, so hungry for it that that they're going to pursue it. And by the way, that's true of everything. That's true of whether or not they're in music or in art or any other cur- extracurricular. They have to do something that, that they're hungry for that speaks to their passion, that speaks to their soul. Um, they don't have to identify it as kids, they, but they have to, if, if anything, you want them to, to identify exploration at, as kids in, in every way, intellectually and physically. Um, you want them to be able to grow them, their, their minds uh, so that so that they're reaching their, their full, uh, and I don't want to say full potential, but, but the full potential that they want for themselves. Mm. So for you, if, if you were to write the, the memoir and the chapter on parenting, where does this come from? Does it come from what, your mom and dad modeled from you? Did it come from positive and negative observations that you saw from when you were eight years old to when you stopped playing? What has shaped your views about youth sports? I, I think, yes, I, my, my, my parents had a, a very interesting um, style together. My father, very stoic, uh, very reserved, was not, did not grow up with with sports like football, I grew up in Jamaica in the West Indies. Uh, with baseball, was not familiar with the culture of football, so he kind of stood back on football and just watched and observed. My mother was very nurturing, very caring, and, and she was a school nurse, and, and so um, I had that sort of the best of both of, of sort of those really hyper loving and hyper stoic uh, parents. And I think the one thing that that I got from them early on was that it was my choice and it was my choice to, to either play or not play. And my father took me up there two years in a row and I left the field crying and then for the third year he didn't bother. He didn't, he didn't even talk to me about it. And I went up on my own and I did it on my own. And, and, and that's, that's why I said he didn't even know I was good until, um, until he, he read it in the paper because it wasn't him saying you have to do this, even though my brothers were tearing it up. Uh, and so I think that, that is a. I don't think parents need to be indifferent to their kids' activities, but I think they they need to to be 
spectators to their kids and true spectators. And I don't mean fans. I mean spectators. I think we have to watch. Uh, we have to be there. We have to pay attention. Uh, we we um, we can't judge. I mean, I can't judge even even you know if, if my kids are doing things that I don't. My one daughter's in a play. She'll be in a play tonight, and she loves to act. And she loves it, and she and she blows me away because I don't know who that kid is when I watch her, and I'm fascinated to get to know her. Because I'm a spectator of her life, I, I'm not—I don't run her life. I'm a spectator, and I have to be supportive, and I have to do all the things a parent does. But when she chooses her activity, I have to be supportive and silent, and let her tell me what the day is like, not let me tell her what she did wrong or right. Um, and that, that was always the thing that that I remember about my father is, I used to, you know, the walk home from school would take me an hour to get home from school. And I would spend that hour thinking about everything that happened in practice so I could tell my father. And I would get home and I would have it all memorized in my head because I relived every play in practice. I relived all, and I came home to tell him what happened or tell my mom what happened. Nowadays, you have parents who, before the kid even gets off the field, their parents telling what they did wrong. Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, you know, for me, it was is I fell in love with, with, with the game because it was mine. It wasn't something I was doing for somebody else. Uh, that's why I soured in professional sports. As soon as the game became a business and I was doing it for somebody else, it wasn't much, much fun anymore. Do you think lacrosse is immune from some of the other problems with the revenue sports because it's a non-revenue sport? That's That's one question. But at the same time, lacrosse increasingly is becoming a non-revenue revenue sport at the youth level, whether it be the club teams, these tournaments that are everywhere, the clinics that people are running. As one of my friends, Fred uh, Cambria, who's a filmmaker, played with us at Syracuse. Oh, yeah. He said, you know, he said, you, we have a problem in our game of profits making profits. And, and this, this thing about lacrosse, where where I, I think, as I said to you a minute ago, Fred, I, I think you know, I, I think every you know, you can, you can if if you choose to be the critic, uh, as I am want to be, um, and I, I don't criticize things I don't care about. So I, I'm a critic only because I love what, I, what I'm a, a critic of. So if you if you look at where lacrosse is vulnerable in the, in the regard as a revenue sport, you have to look at at the schools where lacrosse is big. And and we could take we'll take Syracuse as an example, but if you look at where lacrosse is is big and, and you know it's moved past the Mississippi now for a number of years, um, but prior to it moving past the Mississippi and really what what does lacrosse look like on the West Coast separate uh, aside from the East Coast? Look at the schools where lacrosse is big. It, it's the Ivy Leagues. It is um, you know the Hopkins and and uh, Virginia and. Maryland, and you look at those schools, those are really expensive schools to go to. And a scholarship to those schools, you're talking about, make, you're talking about revenue sports, that's a revenue sport. When you when you talk about going to Syracuse as as a non revenue student athlete at, at, school, uh, at Syracuse University, and your scholarship is worth sixty five, sixty seven thousand dollars a year, that's a revenue that's a revenue sport to the parents. It may not be a revenue sport to the, to the school; it's a revenue sport to the parents, and it comes with its own set of challenges um, because you're not that big time sport because you're not going to get that added support and help from academic services or other places because you're not a revenue sport. Um, but you still re- require to, to you know to, to meet requirements, and 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 that starts in high school. I mean, that starts at youth sports because there's tremendous pressure if you're here on Long Island. There's tremendous pressure when the recruiters come 
come through and it, yeah there's some state schools um but there's also the ivies and there's also Hopkins and Syracuse and those and those large private institutions uh, where tuition is out of control and you can go play lacrosse uh, and, and get a scholarship because it because it is a, such a popular sport. Um, it, it, there there's equally equal amount of pressure in, in that environment and it's financial pressure as well. Hmm. Donnie, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out. Of what I know is an extremely busy schedule. Uh, I want to also take the time to. Just praise you for the kind of work you're doing, uh, the kind of stance you're taking, which is not at all popular. One thing I have known about you since we were in school together is you are a nonconformist and you are consistent. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm consistently inconsistent. People want to know more about your work, uh, about your publications and other ways of, uh, of listening to you talk. How can they find out more? Um, I, have a, I have a website. It's DonaldMcPherson.com. Uh, but you can also obviously follow me on Twitter at Don McPherson, which is probably the best way. All right, man, be good. And uh, I look forward to meeting the girls one day. Yeah, likewise. Now, Don is a guy who is, as he says, he likes to be controversial, but for a positive reason. His, his view of youth sports is very interesting, to say the least. The fact that everybody else is talking about how sports can build character, he argues the opposite. He talks about some of the problematic parts about youth sports that as parents and coaches, we need to be aware of and to prevent from happening. As he said, for him, his playing experience from youth sports all the way through professional was the dialectic of the yin and the yang. And that is true and for many of us about things in life that we deal with. But again, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Don McPherson. I'd say if you enjoyed this one, you should go back and pull up the one with uh, Syracuse uh, linebacker um, and now director of football operations at Boston College, Reggie Terry. A lot of similar type of comments about the inside view of sports. I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did and that you'll share it with people via a link or an MP3 download from our site. And there are lots more of great interviews with former All-American players as well as coaches in the Hall of Fame. Thanks again for listening to the show. I love giving talks on the topic of school and sports. For more information, email the show at fdopie at gmail.com. Once again, that's fdopie at gmail.com. You can also contact us if you're interested in advertising on the show. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend, share the show on Facebook and Twitter, or send them to our website at fredopie.com. Thanks for listening, and be good.